Rooted Week 10, Why is the Church Important? Weekly Memory Verse And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10, 24-25 Day 1, All in the Family I am assuming that we are all committed to the church. We are not only Christian people, we are also church people. We are not only committed to Christ, we are also committed to the body of Christ. At least I hope so. For the church lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. John Stott The Bible is very clear. Christians are to belong to a church, to belong to the body of Christ. And that word belong is kind of a tricky word because it means more than just show up as often as you can on Sundays. We use the word belong the same way you would if you were saying you belong to your family. When you belong to your family, it doesn't mean you just show up to be fed when you are hungry, rest when you're tired, and use the family name for applications when needed. Paul writes to the Galatians, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Genesis 6.10. Excuse me, Galatians 6.10. It's in this verse where we see the context of the family of God. A family is a place where we love and are loved in a way that helps us become all we should be. When we belong to a family, we are in relationships with the other members of our family. We are part of something bigger than ourselves. As part of a family, we are valuable, contributing members, not just attendees. We contribute our time, money, ideas, and energy. We are not only served, but we serve as well. We are together for times of celebration, challenge, and everything in between. You've heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water, and that phrase is typically used to describe the bond there is in a family. It's the same in the church. We are connected through the blood of Christ and our sisters and brothers in God's family. Ephesians 2.19 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. We are part of God's family. As members of the church, we don't attend, we belong. This week, we will look at a passage in Romans that emphasizes the practicality of belonging to the church. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Romans 12, 9-16 This passage describes belong perfectly. In verses 9 and 10, it says to love one another, 
which means to take a genuine interest in people we encounter and to pause and consider how they are or what they might need in that particular moment. People are drawn into a relationship with Christ through the kindness of real Christian love more often than theological arguments. Conversely, people are driven from church by the hardness and ugliness of fake or hypocritical Christians more than by their religious doubts. The Greek word used for love in verse 9 is agape, which means unconditional and sacrificial love, the way Jesus loves us. In verse 10, where it says genuine affection, another form of the same root word for love is used, but here it means brotherly love, which is the same as family love. That is how we are to love those in our church family, and that is the first ingredient of belong. Members of a church may not be able to explain it or define it, but they know when genuine love is there and when it is not. People will get up early, pass 50 other churches, and drive all the way across town if they know a warm experience awaits them with genuine love. For some, the love they receive in church is the only real connection they will experience all week long. So come on in. Welcome to the family. Daily Response What makes you feel like an attendee at church? What makes you feel like someone who belongs to your church? Write a prayer asking God to show you how to genuinely receive love and also show Christ's love to others in your church. Day 2. Responding to God What is worship? Some people think worship is singing hymns or praise songs in church services, but it's much more than that. In fact, everything we are studying and rooted is considered worship. Even beyond that, we worship with our whole lives. Biblical principles and commands related to worship are much broader and more integrated into the Christian life than just singing. Worship is responding to all God is and all he's done with all we are. Worship is the response of grateful and humble people to the living God, where submission, sacrificial service, praise, and gratitude are freely expressed in many different ways. It could be that for some people, worship means occupying a pew on Sunday morning and perhaps singing hymns. For others, it may mean lighting a candle, crossing themselves, or kneeling in an aisle. These things are aids to worship, but they're not worship in themselves. In some cases, they may also hinder it. True worship occurs only when your spirit meets with God and finds itself praising him for his love, wisdom, beauty, truth, holiness, compassion, mercy, grace, power, and all other attributes that describe him. William Barclay sums it up well. The true, the genuine worship is when man, through his spirit, attains to friendship and intimacy with God. True and genuine worship is not to come to a certain place it is not to go through a certain ritual or liturgy. It is not even to bring certain gifts. True worship is when the spirit, the immortal and invisible part of man, speaks to and meets with God, who is immortal and invisible. The following passage in John says we are to worship in both spirit and truth. Jesus replied, 
Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. John 4, 21-24 John explains in his gospel that true worship happens in the context of the Spirit-given new life, and on the basis of God's self-disclosure in Christ, who is the truth. In other words, it means true worship happens in the Holy Spirit and in line with Jesus' teaching. We must approach God truthfully, honestly. According to Jesus, there is no true worship unless there is honesty of heart on the part of the worshiper, it has to be authentic. We can't pretend to worship. We have to worship honestly, knowing our hearts are open books before God. Worship is not about us. We shouldn't come to church seeking for all our needs to be met, but rather to respond to God in truth and spirit. But how many times have we left a weekend service doing exactly that, grading the performance of the speaker, the singers, or the worship leaders? As long as you notice and have to count the steps, you are not yet dancing, but only learning to dance. A good shoe is a shoe you don't have to notice. Good reading becomes possible when you need not consciously think about eyes or light or print or spelling. The perfect church service would be one where would be one we were almost unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. C.S. Lewis, Letters to Malcolm. John Stott responded to the question, What is worship? with this answer. This is worship. It is to seek to give to God the glory which is due to his name. Indeed, the best biblical definition of worship I know is to glory in his holy name, Psalm 105, verse 3, that is, to revel in the unique wonder of who he is and has revealed himself to be. If worship is right because God is worthy of it, it is also the best of all antidotes to our own self-centeredness, the most effective way to disinfect us of egotism, as one writer put it long ago. In true worship, we turn the searchlight of our mind and heart upon God, and temporarily forget about our troublesome and usually intrusive selves. We marvel at the beauties and intricacies of God's creation. We survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. We are taken up with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught us to do this in the Lord's Prayer, whose first three sentences focus not on our own needs, but on His glory, on the honoring of His name, the spread of His kingdom, and the doing of His will. Because we are normally so turned in on ourselves, we will not find this easy. But we have to persevere, since nothing is more right or more important. John Stott, Christian Basics Remember, worship is never just going through the motions. It isn't worship unless God is at the forefront of our focus, and we are honoring him with our minds and hearts. Also, you don't have to wait until you go to a church service. You can worship any time during any day in any place. As soon as you glory in his holy name, whether driving to work, playing with the kids, sitting in a class at school, or working out, you're worshiping. Daily Response Where in your life do you worship in spirit and truth? What sometimes keeps you from authentic worship?
Write a prayer of worship, responding to who God is and what he has done. Keep your focus selfless and centered on God alone. Day three, ceremonies. Ceremonies are important. They mark transitions, accomplishments, and milestones in people's lives. We have ceremonies when people get married, when they graduate, when they have birthdays, and when they die. The reason we have these ceremonies isn't for the ceremonies themselves. It is because we are celebrating an event or a memorable time and we are honoring someone's life. God understands the importance of ceremonies, and so he gave us two baptism, and the Lord's Supper, or communion. These celebrations are public expressions of the gospel of Christ. Both are instituted in the gospels, celebrated in Acts, and explained in the epistles. Since our Lord himself institutes them in the gospels, we may conclude they are part of his message to us. Since they are celebrated in Acts, we conclude they belong to the practice of Christ's church. And since they are explained in the epistles, we conclude they are designed to be continued until Christ returns. Baptism. Romans 6, 3-4 says, Or have you forgotten that when we became Christians and were baptized to become one with Christ Jesus, we died with him? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Baptism, from the Greek word baptizo, which means to plunge, immerse something in water, is an important step in our journeys as followers of Christ and an outward symbol of the work he has already done in our lives. The Lord commanded, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. The word of our Lord is sufficient warrant for baptism of believers. No further authority is needed. The early church practiced baptisms. In Acts eight twelve, we read of Philip's preaching the gospel message to those in Samaria. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. In fact, eleven times in the book of Acts, we see that immediately after someone believed in Jesus, that person was baptized. Without a doubt, God expects those of us who have accepted Jesus to be baptized as a ceremony, locking in the importance of our salvation. Romans 6, 3-4 paints a beautiful picture of baptism as our identification with Jesus in his death, going down into the water, baptized with his death, Romans 6, 4, is the burial of old sin nature. Resurrection, coming up out of the water, we are reborn, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Have you been baptized? It is not for everyone. It is only for those who have personally received Jesus Christ as Savior, trusting, and Lord, obeying. Throughout the New Testament, we read that people professed faith in Jesus and then were baptized. No one is baptized before a belief in Christ. If you are a believer, your first act of obedience is to get baptized. Many believers put this off, thinking that they'll get around to it, that it's not that important, or even that they feel uncomfortable getting wet in front of others. But Jesus commands us to get baptized immediately after accepting him and expects us to do it. More often than not, the person who sincerely gets baptized as an expression of faith marks it as a highlight and a launching of his or her spiritual life. 
communion. In Acts 2.42, we read, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The breaking of bread, or communion, was one of the repeated experiences the early church had together. Why is taking communion so important in a believer's life? In doing so, we acknowledge the tremendous work Jesus did on the cross in a tangible, physical way, and in a way Jesus directed. A core and foundational event in the Old Testament was Passover, the deliverance of the Israelites as slaves in Egypt under the dominion of Pharaoh. It is described in Exodus 12. A lamb was slain for every household, and the blood was painted onto the doorposts. This was done so that the angel of death would not slay the firstborn son of the Jewish households, but only those of Pharaoh's people, whom God had warned he would judge. The Lord told the children of Israel, But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you were staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. They were to eat the lamb, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, in haste prior to their departure from Egypt. God ordained that the children of Israel would commemorate the Passover with a special meal every year to remember their deliverance. On the final evening of his life on earth, before being betrayed and facing crucifixion, Jesus was preparing to have a Passover meal with his disciples. Much work went into observing the Passover meal, including obtaining unleavened bread, spices, fruit, and a lamb. The room had to be searched for any trace of yeast. Any crumb of bread had to be removed. Yeast represented the evil influence of Egypt that the Jews were leaving behind at the Exodus. The Apostle Paul writes to the early church about the significance of communion. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. 1 Corinthians 11, 23-29 Jesus' intention was to connect the most significant ceremony of the Old Testament, Passover, with his death and the ceremony of communion. Both symbolize the death of a firstborn, the power of sacrificial blood, and the rescue, salvation of God's people. We are also instructed in this passage not to observe the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. We are to come to the table with hearts prepared. Just as the yeast had to be removed before the Passover meal, sin must be removed from our lives through confession and repentance. Paul said, Let a man examine himself. We are not to enter lightly into the observance of the Lord's Supper. There is a necessary preparation. Once our hearts are prepared, we can continue with communion with Jesus as our model. The disciples were to take or receive the bread, which represented the body of Christ, and to drink the wine, which represented the blood. These two actions represent the wonderful truth that we may have life, forgiveness, and release from the power of sin, by accepting Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for our sin. Whenever we take communion, we are remembering that Jesus loved us so much that he gave his body for us and that the spilling of his blood established a new covenant between God and us. We gain eternal life through the blood of Christ. Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. Why did he say that? Because people tend to forget. 
We forget that Jesus came to earth as a man, that he died because he loves us, that because of his sacrifice we are forgiven and we are part of God's family. Communion is a powerful ceremony and we get to celebrate it regularly as part of our worship. Daily Response If you have been baptized, describe your experience and the events leading up to it. If you haven't been baptized, what are your thoughts about it? What are your thoughts about the Lord's Supper? Write a prayer encompassing your thoughts about the Lord's Supper and baptism. What do these ceremonies symbolize to you? Day 4, Maturing in Christ At the end of the Romans passage we looked at earlier this week, we read about living in relationship with others. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Romans 12:16. We already discussed the command of belonging to a church and serving one another. Today we will see the importance of small groups and how we grow in our faith as we walk through life with others. After much political unrest due to the fall of communism in Romania, there were many orphans left who were basically warehoused in huge orphanages. The children had most of their physical needs provided for, food, shelter, and some hygiene. However, because these facilities were vastly understaffed, the children were seldom picked up and played with or snuggled. Many of them had what doctors call failure-to-thrive syndrome. The children may have been many months or sometimes even years old, but they still looked and acted like infants. They did not have family, or even a surrogate family, to encourage growth. The Christian life can be the same. We might be born into new life with Jesus, but if we are left on our own, we can have that same failure-to-thrive syndrome in our spiritual lives. Each member of God's family has received certain gifts to contribute to the growth of the body, and those gifts can be used so beautifully in small groups where you experience spiritual growth. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Acts 2, 42-47 The early church knew the value of walking through life together. They prayed daily for one another, served together, and encouraged one another. You've been part of a rooted group in these past several weeks, and as you look through the experiences of the early church, you will recognize some of those from your time in rooted. It is our hope that once you have graduated from Rooted, your group will continue to meet as a small group. 
you can grow together in your faith, serving, praying, and experiencing evangelism and communion. During our weekend services at church, we study God's truth together. Our value is to open up the Bible, get people in God's Word, and teach it in a way that causes people to think. But to really apply these truths to daily life, groups meet during the week and move these truths from their minds to their hearts and change the way they live. In small groups, we provide a way to continue the conversation. Through small groups, people are able to see how the Bible is relevant in their lives, even 2,000 years after it was written. The Holy Spirit convicts us of truths we may not even we may not have seen if we had not opened ourselves up during these two, these group discussions. Small groups are the perfect place for these discussions because there are people who want to comfort, encourage, pray, come alongside, and minister to the needs of others in the group. Bonds build trust. Trust builds bonds. You cannot have this type of deep fellowship in a larger congregation. You need to have face-to-face relationships that can grow. This is what Scripture says. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person fails, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Ecclesiastes 4, 9-12 as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. When you bridge from being a rooted group to being a small group, you will continue this transformational journey. Small groups provide the perfect place not only for those ex-experiences from rooted, but also a place for ongoing support, encouragement, and accountability. But, <coughs> excuse me. But small groups are much more than a place for believers to gather to build each other up. Part of thriving as a believer is becoming a fearless influencer of society. These dynamic groups are designed to transform the communities they live in. There is nothing wrong with believers gathering to study the Bible, build friendships, and pray for each other, but it's not enough. God has planted us where we live, work, and play to have an impact. A primary focus of a small group is to challenge each other and work together in tangible, regular ways to transform the community around it. A small group may work together to make their impact serving the homeless once a month, mentoring children at a local school, helping run a resource center that serves those in need, etc. There is something synergistic about serving together in this way to change a community with the love and truth of Christ. But it may also be the case that everyone in a small group has different passions and gifts to serve the community. A group delights in encouraging, listening to the stories, and holding accountable each of its members to do their particular service for extending God's kingdom into the community. Small groups are designed to leave a footprint in the neighborhood they are planted, Our desire for small groups is that God will build up its members so that he can partner with them to change the world. That's exciting. Daily Response Have you decided to continue with your rooted group as a small group? If not, where is your need for community being met? How can your small group join in with God's mission of restoration in your surrounding community and beyond? In what ways will your relationship with God be strengthened by committing to a small group that cares for each other and the world around them?
write a prayer to God, asking for wisdom, cohesion, and unity as you move forward in your small group. Day 5. Looking back, looking ahead. As we come to the conclusion of this study guide in the Rooted Experience, don't stop here. Continue the momentum of growing in your relationship with God and with others in your group. Live out the rhythms of Rooted by serving together, praying together, and loving those around you. You are part of a culture-changing movement. God has equipped you perfectly and beautifully to fulfill his purpose in you and your purpose in this world. Remember this experience. Take it and use it as you move through your one God-given life. And always, always remember how much he loves you. Daily Response Think about your rooted experience. What are some highlights? What are one or two truths you want to take away from this time? How have you heard God's voice? What's the next step you will take toward fulfilling the purpose God has planned for you? Begin thinking of words of affirmation for each person in your soul squad. You will have time to share these at your last meeting. Thank God for the time spent and rooted. Thank him for what you've learned, for the relationships you've strengthened, and for the perfect way he's equipped you for your purposes here.